Chapter Two of From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne and translated by Louis Mercier and Elizabeth E. King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Two. President Barbicane's Communication On the 5th of October, at 8 p.m., a dense crowd pressed towards the saloons of the gun club at Number 21, Union Square. All the members of the association resident in Baltimore attended the invitation of their president. As regards the corresponding members, notices were delivered by hundreds throughout the streets of the city, and large as was the great hall, it was quite inadequate to accommodate the crowd of savants. They overflowed into the adjoining rooms, down the narrow passages, into the outer courtyards. There they ran against the vulgar herd who pressed up to the doors, each struggling to reach the front ranks, all eager to learn the nature of the important communication of President Barbicane, all pushing, squeezing, crushing with that perfect freedom of action which is peculiar to the masses when educated in ideas of self-government. On that evening a stranger who might have chanced to be in Baltimore could not have gained admission for love or money into the great hall. That was reserved exclusively for resident or corresponding members. No one else could possibly have obtained a place, and the city magnates, municipal councillors, and selectmen were compelled to mingle with the mere townspeople in order to catch stray bits of news from the interior. Nevertheless, the vast hall presented a curious spectacle. Its immense area was singularly adapted to the purpose. Lofty pillars formed of cannon, superposed upon huge mortars as a base, supported the fine ironwork of the arches, a perfect piece of cast-iron lacework. Trophies of blunderbusses, matchlocks, arquebuses, carbines, all kinds of firearms, ancient and modern, were picturesquely interlaced against the walls. The gas lit up in full glare, myriads of revolvers grouped in the form of lusters, while groups of pistols and candelabra formed of muskets bound together, completed this magnificent display of brilliance. Models of cannon, bronze castings, sights covered with dents, plates battered by the shots of the gun-club, assortments of rammers and sponges, chaplets of shells, wreaths of projectiles, garlands of howitzers, in short, all the apparatus of the artillerist, enchanted the eye by this wonderful arrangement, and induced a kind of belief that their real purpose was ornamental, rather than deadly. At the further end of the saloon the President, assisted by four secretaries, occupied a large platform. His chair, supported by a carved gun-carriage, was modelled upon the ponderous proportions of a thirty-two-inch mortar. It was pointed at an angle of ninety degrees, and suspended upon trunnions, so that the President could balance himself upon it as upon a rocking-chair, a very agreeable fact in the very hot weather. Upon the table— a huge iron plate supported upon six carronades, stood an inkstand of exquisite elegance, made of a beautifully chased Spanish piece, 
and a sonnet, which, when required, could give forth a report equal to that of a revolver. During violent debates, this novel kind of bell scarcely sufficed to drown the clamour of these excitable artillerists. In front of the table, benches arranged in zigzag form, like the circumvallations of a retrenchment, formed a succession of bastions and curtains set apart for the use of the members of the club and on this especial evening one might say all the world was on the ramparts the president was sufficiently well known however for all to be assured that he would not put his colleagues to discomfort without some very strong motive impey barbicane was a man of forty years of age calm cold austere of a singularly serious and self-contained demeanour punctual as a chronometer of imperturbable temper and immovable character by no means chivalrous yet adventurous withal and always bringing practical ideas to bear upon the very rashest enterprises an essentially new englander a northern colonist a descendant of the old anti-stuart roundheads and the implacable enemy of the gentlemen of the south those ancient cavaliers of the mother country in a word he was a yankee to the backbone barbicane had made a large fortune as a timber merchant being nominated director of artillery during the war he proved himself fertile in invention bold in his conceptions he contributed powerfully to the progress of that arm and gave an immense impetus to experimental researches he was a personage of the middle height having by a rare exception in the gun club all his limbs complete his strongly marked features seemed drawn by square and rule and if it be true that in order to judge of a man's character one must look at his profile barbicane so examined exhibited the most certain indications of energy audacity and sang-froid at this moment he was sitting in his armchair silent absorbed lost in reflection sheltered under his high-crowned hat a kind of black silk cylinder which always seemed firmly screwed upon the head of an american just when the deep-toned clock in the great hall struck eight barbicane as if he had been set in motion by a spring raised himself up a profound silence ensued and the speaker in his somewhat emphatic tone of voice commenced as follows my brave colleagues too long already a paralyzing peace has plunged the members of the gun club in deplorable inactivity after a period of years full of incidents we have been compelled to abandon our labors and to stop short on the road of progress i do not hesitate to state boldly that any war which should recall us to arms would be welcome there was tremendous applause but war gentlemen is impossible under existing circumstances and however we may desire it many years may elapse before our cannon shall again thunder in the field of battle we must make up our minds then to seek in another train of ideas some field for the activity which we all pine for the meeting felt that the president was now approaching the critical point and redoubled their attention accordingly for some months past my brave colleagues continued barbicane i have been asking myself whether while confining ourselves to our own particular objects we could not enter upon some grand experiment 
worthy of the 19th century, and whether the progress of artillery science would not enable us to carry it out to a successful issue. I have been considering, working, calculating, and the result of my studies is the conviction that we are safe to succeed in an enterprise which to any other country would appear wholly impracticable. This project, the result of long elaboration, is the object of my present communication. It is worthy of yourselves, worthy of the antecedents of the gun club, and it cannot fail to make some noise in the world. A thrill of excitement ran through the meeting. Barbicane, having by a rapid movement firmly fixed his hat upon his head, calmly continued his harangue. There is no one among you, my brave colleagues, who has not seen the moon, or at least heard speak of it. Don't be surprised if I am about to discourse to you regarding this queen of the night. It is perhaps reserved for us to become the Columbuses of this unknown world. Only enter into my plans, and second me with all your power, and I will lead you to its conquest, and its name shall be added to those of the thirty-six states which compose this great union. Three cheers for the moon!' roared the gun-club with one voice. "'The moon, gentlemen, has been carefully studied,' continued Barbicane. "'Her mass, density, and weight, her constitution, motions, distance, as well as her place in the solar system, have all been exactly determined. Selenographic charts have been constructed with a perfection which equals, if it does not even surpass, that of our terrestrial maps. Photography has given us proofs of the incomparable beauty of our satellite. In short, all is known regarding the moon which mathematical science, astronomy, geology, and optics can learn about her. But up to the present moment no direct communication has been established with her. A violent movement of interest and surprise here greeted this remark of the speaker. "'Permit me,' he continued, "'to recount to you briefly how certain ardent spirits, starting on imaginary journeys, have penetrated the secrets of our satellite. In the seventeenth century a certain David Fabricius boasted of having seen with his own eyes the inhabitants of the moon. In 1649 a Frenchman, one Jean Baudouin, published a journey performed from the earth to the moon by Domingo González, a Spanish adventurer. At the same period, Cyrano de Bergerac published that celebrated Journeys in the Moon, which met with such success in France. Somewhat later, another Frenchman, named Fontenelle, wrote The Plurality of Worlds, a chef d'oeuvre of its time. About 1835, a small treatise, translated from the New York American, related how Sir John Herschel, having been dispatched to the Cape of Good Hope for the purpose of making there some astronomical calculations, had, by means of a telescope brought to perfection by means of internal lighting, reduced the apparent distance of the moon to eighty yards. He then distinctly perceived caverns frequented by hippopotami, green mountains bordered by golden lacework, sheep with horns of ivory, a white species of deer, and inhabitants with membranous wings, like bats. This brochure, the work of an American named Locke, had a great sale. 
But, to bring this rapid sketch to a close, I will only add that a certain Hans Fall of Rotterdam, launching himself in a balloon filled with a gas extracted from nitrogen, thirty-seven times lighter than hydrogen, reached the moon after a passage of nineteen hours. This journey, like all the previous ones, was purely imaginary. Still, it was the work of a popular American author. I mean Edgar Poe. "'Cheers for Edgar Poe!' roared the assemblage, electrified by their president's words. "'I have now enumerated,' said Barbicane, "'the experiments which I call purely paper ones, and wholly insufficient to establish serious relations with the Queen of Night. Nevertheless, I am bound to add that some practical geniuses have attempted to establish actual communication with her. Thus, a few years ago, a German geometrician proposed to send a scientific expedition to the steppes of Siberia. There, on those vast plains, they were to describe enormous geometric figures, drawn in characters of reflecting luminosity, amongst which was the proposition regarding the square of the hypothenuse, commonly called the ass's bridge by the French. Every intelligent being, said the geometrician, must understand the scientific meaning of that figure. The Selenites, do they exist, will respond by a similar figure, and, a communication being thus once established, it will be easy to form an alphabet which shall enable us to converse with the inhabitants of the moon. So spoke the German geometrician, but his project was never put into practice, and up to the present day there is no bond in existence between the earth and her satellite. It is reserved for the practical genius of Americans to establish a communication with the sidereal world. The means of arriving thither are simple, easy, certain, infallible, and that is the purpose of my present proposal. A storm of acclamations greeted these words. There was not a single person in the whole audience who was not overcome, carried away, lifted out of himself by the speaker's words. Long-continued applause resounded from all sides. As soon as the excitement had partially subsided, Barbicane resumed his speech in a somewhat graver voice. "'You know,' said he, "'what progress artillery science has made during the last few years, and what a degree of perfection firearms of every kind have reached. Moreover, you are well aware that in general terms the resisting power of cannon— and the expensive force of gunpowder are practically unlimited. Well, starting from this principle, I ask myself whether, supposing sufficient apparatus could be obtained, constructed upon the conditions of ascertained resistance, it might not be possible to project a shot up to the moon? At these words a murmur of amazement escaped from a thousand panting chests, then succeeded a moment of perfect silence, resembling that profound stillness which precedes the bursting of a thunderstorm. In point of fact, a thunderstorm did peal forth, but it was the thunder of applause, of cries, and of uproar which made the very hall tremble. The president attempted to speak, but could not. It was fully ten minutes before he could make himself heard. Suffer me to finish he calmly continued. I have looked at the question in all its bearings. I have resolutely attacked it, 
and by incontrovertible calculations I find that a projectile, endowed with an initial velocity of twelve thousand yards per second, and aimed at the moon, must necessarily reach it. I have the honour, my brave colleagues, to propose a trial of this little experiment. End of chapter.